Last Monday, New Year's Day, the Alabama Crimson Tide, I'm, you guys know I'm an Alabama Crimson Tide fan, Michigan, I know, I knew, I knew as soon as I said that, Mike Duff, that you would say something, Bill Levergood has been smarting off, yeah, go blue, I know, I know. It, that game was a good game, and it went into overtime, and Michigan scored, and then Alabama got the ball, and the things were looking pretty good, and then it slowed down, and it became the fourth down, and Alabama had to score. The, the ball was on the three-yard line. Alabama had to score. And by the way, this is not me whining. There's a point to all this. Okay, I might be whining a little. But the whole point of what was about to happen, this one play, fourth down, the ball's on the three-yard line, and if Alabama doesn't score here, all their hopes for the national championship to continue on are gone, and Michigan gets to play for the championship. Well, they called, they, they made the call, and a bad snap to the Alabama quarterback, Jalen Monroe, who's been a phenom, uh, who's really come along the last part of the year, he, his play was to run the ball into the teeth of the Michigan defense, and he did so. And he got to the two-yard line, and that was it. Michigan advanced to the championship game. Now, the real story for me... I, 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 I wasn't devastated by the loss. I, I was surprised Alabama was playing the game anyway. Uh, but the thing for me was then the call. That call seemed a little crazy to me. Uh, the the um, educated football coach material that I am. And I mean, if you watch the media at all, there's been so much speculation uh, about the coach's call to run their quarterback straight up the middle against the number one defense against the run in the country. Why would you do that? That was, that call on that fourth down, that was the decisive moment for the Alabama Crimson Tide and any hope for a national championship. But I want to tell you that our lives, by the way, let me just say, a decisive moment, it seems like a really big deal. And the media has, if you watch the media, all week long, Twitter, what was formerly Twitter, I mean, people have been speculating. Nick Saban has gotten, he's felt the pressure, Nick Saban's the Alabama coach, he's felt the pressure to go on and try to explain the call and defend his offensive coordinator who made the call. I mean, it has been a media circus that has... Uh, that has really bordered on the the absolute hilarious, because I mean these guys, everybody's trying to sort this out and figure this out. I got to tell you something. There are way more important decisive moments that happen in everybody's life than the decisive moment on the fourth down of the last play of a football game. And I like I like to watch it. I like to be involved. I yell and I holler and I may throw popcorn up in the air once in a while when something good happens at a football game. But I'm going to tell you, that is not the most decisive moment that those young men and that those coaches or anybody else are going to face in their lifetime. 
The truth is, decisive moments come to all of us. That started happening to us when we were kids. I mean, when we were children, and and I, I, I asked around a couple, and this seems to resonate with a lot of people, um... Man, we make decisive moments when we're in school and we're given a test and we realize that we can see our neighbor's paper. And we make a decision, am I going to do my work or am I going to copy somebody? That for a child, uh, for a young person, for, for a person in school, that is a decisive moment. That's a moment that requires... A decision. It happens in work. It happens when we decide to make the right thing, to do the right thing, to make a decision when others do not, even though it might cost us in some way or another. And very, very often these decisive moments change the direction of our lives. The truth is... Decisive moments come to all of us. And I would even dare say this morning as we look at Matthew chapter 26, that decisive moments, a decisive moment in particular, has come uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to read about it together. Would you stand with me uh, this morning as we read beginning in Matthew 26 and verse 36. Be on the screen and look at it in your, in your scripture. But let's read it out loud together. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane. And saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and became to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What, could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time, and prayed, saying, O my father, if this may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Lord, we ask that you would help us this morning 
as we consider the decisive moment, this decisive moment in your life, Lord Jesus, and how it will impact us both today and in the future. We thank you for what you're going to do. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Now, it was late on Thursday night, this scene that we just read about. It was a week full of last things for Jesus. Uh, This was the end of his earthly ministry. The last visit to the temple. His last sermon. The Last Supper. And now, with three of his inner circle, the last prayer that he prayed before going to the cross. For Jesus, this decisive moment didn't take place in the classroom. It didn't take place on a football field. It took place in an olive grove, a garden, if you will. Not behind a desk, but behind an olive tree. Not in a comfortable chair but kneeling on cold, hard ground. When Jesus entered to the garden that evening, he knew that he would be arrested there. He knew that this was the beginning of the end. When John described the arrival of the soldiers uh, to arrest Jesus, John tells us in chapter 18 and verse 4, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, Shaq, can you get that one up, bud? I I really want you to see this. John 18 and verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them who seek ye. Jesus knew that this was the decisive moment. He knew that this is what his entire earthly life had all been about. It had all come down to this. It was the purpose of for which he came. Now this morning I want to ask you to listen very closely and and look very uh, carefully at the things we're uh, uh, going to talk about today if you're a follower of Jesus Christ or if you're somebody who needs to know who Jesus is today. I'm going to ask you, if you ever decide to be a follower of Christ, you are going to have to have a decisive moment. I would even say... You're going to have in your life uh, a, your own Gethsemane as Jesus did. In fact, it really, I think, explains, at least in some part, why Jesus invited the three of his disciples to go with him. Gethsemane was a very familiar place to these disciples. They'd been there several times before. And even Judas knew where Jesus would be that night. Verse, uh, John 18 and verse 2 tells us that Jesus often met with his disciples in this garden. And so Jesus here invited uh, Peter, James, and John to accompany him, and he did it for a reason. He wanted them, and I think he wanted us, to learn how to handle the decisive moments that come into our lives. Now, a decisive moment occurs... When I'm faced with a, decision, with a situation where I'm going to have to, ch- to make a choice and decide, am I going to do what God wants in my life or am I going to do what I want? Now let me be careful to say here that following Jesus doesn't mean we always do what we don't want to do. Because sometimes if we're not careful, we'll make it sound that way. 
You can have a great life, a fun life, a happy life unless you follow Jesus. And then if you do that, then everything's going to be bad. That is not the case. Your best life will always be doing what Jesus wants you to do. Your best life will be always be of what God wants you to do. But these decisive moments, by definition, require us to make a decision. And as we've said before, they happen in all of our lives. And so today, we want to learn from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that the benefits of doing the will of God are always greater than the cost. So as we look at Jesus this morning, we can see three truths about these decisive moments. Let me give you the first one. You might want to write these down. These are really important for us, all of us. The first one is this. Decisive moments involve seeking the will of God. Decisive moments involve seeking the will of God. Now, in the few times that we see Jesus praying in the Gospels, only one time do we ever see him praying the same thing more than once. It happens in our text here in Matthew chapter 26. In verse 39, it says, He went a little further, fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Then just three verses later, in verse 42, he comes back. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Second time, same prayer. Third time, verse 44, And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. In the most anguished, difficult prayer that Jesus ever prayed, there was one thing on his mind and one thing on his heart. And that one thing was to do the will of God. Apart from the will of God, there would have been no Gethsemane. People, can I just say this? People who who have no concern for their spiritual life, who have no concern for God, who have no concern for doing right, they, they're not, they're not interesting in, interested in going into the Garden of Gethsemane. The one thing that brought Jesus to this grove full of olive trees on this, the darkest night in all the history of mankind, was his desire to do the will of God. He wanted to do the will of God. Now, to be sure... Doing the will of the Father had been the supreme concern of Jesus' whole life. When when Jesus was 12 years old, you remember that his parents left him uh, in a group that was leaving uh, Jerusalem. And a couple of days, they didn't find him. They went back and found him. And this is what Jesus said to his parents. He was 12 years old. He said, Wished you not, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? At 12 years old... He was concerned about doing the will of the Father. Very early in his ministry, John chapter 4 records Jesus saying unto them, My meat or my food uh, is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He said later in John 6 and verse 38, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. 
It is the will of God uh, that Jesus was focused on. God's will was not something that God the Father forced on God the Son. It was something that God the Son was always seeking from God the Father. In fact, Jesus said in John 5.30, I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. James Merritt wrote that the entire Bible is the story of two gardens, the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. What one man did in one garden ruined us. What another man did in the other garden rescued us. That's a really interesting thought, isn't it? In the first garden, Adam decided to seek his own will rather than doing what he knew God wanted him to do. And instead of doing what God wanted him to do, Adam did according to his own desire. And because of that, we now have the four major problems in the world today. Sin, sickness, sorrow, and death. The ultimate reason why there's cancer and murder and divorce and, and uh, war and adultery and terrorism and greed and jealousy, it's all because one man looked at God and said, Not your will, my will be done. But when Jesus came to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, Not my will, but thy will be done. Just like Jesus we were put on this earth to seek the will of God. Every day, the life of every believer uh, should be about seeking, finding, and doing the will of God on that day. But can I say to you what I have discovered about me? And that is, that's the problem. Every day, every day, I am put here to seek the will of God, to find the will of God, and then knowing the will of God, to do the will of God on that day. That is why we need to read God's Word and pray every single day. I, that, that's how we seek and know the will of God. Now, let me give you an example from my own life this week. I, uh, we started the Bible reading plan again. I hope you got started. It's not too late uh, to uh, get in on that. It, 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 this will be our 15th year in reading the, Bible, the entire Bible this year together. It's so exciting uh, to do that. But this week, and I, I, I was reading, it was on Thursday, and just praying about different things. Uh, in my life, different things in our church, different things about the, the will of God uh, in the lives of others and, and asking God for direction. And I don't know about you, but do you ever pray about something and, and then pray about it again and at some point you kind of get discouraged about it because you're not sure if, if it's really making a difference to pray? I mean, sometimes don't you just need encouragement to keep on doing what you know to do, and that is reading God's Word and praying. Well, on Thursday, sometimes we just need, we need encouragement just to pray about something, right? I just need encouragement to pray. Well, on Thursday morning, I, I read that the reading for the day included Psalm chapter 5, the fifth psalm. Listen to what it says. 
Give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. David is basically saying, this is the Jennings version of that, Lord, I'm praying, are you listening? I'm talking, can you hear me? Are you interested? And then right away in verse 3, he said, David says this, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. God spoke to my heart that morning, and he said, Listen, when you pray... Yes, you may have some doubts about it. You may get discouraged when you pray. But listen, God is there and he will hear. David communicates with his own heart and he says, Yes, my voice he will hear in the morning. Yes, I will direct my prayer unto God. Don't you need that encouragement once in a while? Just to go ahead and pray about it? That's what that's what I'm talking about. We all need to to learn from the Word of God, to seek God every day. I need to be reminded to look up. I, I know it is His will that I pray. That was a decisive moment for me about praying. I had to determine in my heart, I'm going to pray about some things this very morning. That's the decisive moment. We have these decisive moments in our lives, and those decisive moments involve seeking the will of God. The question you must ask yourself today is, do I really care about doing God's will in my life today? Do I really care about doing God's will in my life tomorrow? Do I really care about seeking God's will in my life this week, this month, this year? That's the first of those principles. The second principle that ought to guide us in decisive moments that we learn from the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane is that decisive moments include struggling with the will of God. Now, if we've been in Gethsemane that night, I have all the confidence in the world that, that we could have picked out Jesus out of the twelve and then out of the three, right? I mean, it would have been pretty obvious. He would have been the one on the ground. He would have been the one whose garments were literally soaked with sweat. He would have been the one whose hair was plastered to his forehead wet, not just with drops of sweat, but with drops of blood. As Jesus walked from the upper room across the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives that night to the Garden of Gethsemane, if he would have looked back over his shoulder, he could have seen the, the, the lights of Jerusalem. But he would have seen other things that the disciples couldn't see. Jesus knew that just outside the city, the greatest battle in the history of the world is going to be fought and won, and that war was going to be over. He also knew that he was facing something that no one else could face, that no one else has ever faced, that no one else ever will face, he knew that he was going to go to the cross 
and he was going to take all the sins of the world, all the sins of all time, of all people, of the people who had who had yet been born or who had already been born and those who had yet been born, he was going to take all those sins of all time on himself. Jesus knows as he is walking down uh, the hill across the Kidron Brook up uh, the uh, the slope of the Mount of Olives to that garden, Jesus knew that all the forces of hell are about to be unleashed upon him in the coming hours. And Jesus knew exactly what he was supposed to do. He doesn't want to do it. Now don't misunderstand Jesus was willing. That's why he came. He came. He didn't come to be born as a baby in a manger. He came to die on the cross to pay for our sins. That would, was determined before the foundations of the world. The Bible says he was a lamb slain from the foundations of the world. That was already determined. He already knew it. But he had to live it. He was now in the flesh. And he was struggling in his flesh, in his flesh. And, and that struggle was a, was a struggle. Now, we all have struggles. In fact, I think struggles is one of the, uh, the favorite words in America today. I struggle with this. I struggle with that. I'm struggling here. I'm struggling there. Um, I, I have, a, have, a, have a pastor friend who, who likes to say we are fellow strugglers on the road. And I, and I get all that. I really do get all that. But nobody has ever struggled like Jesus struggled that night. His struggle is of eternal proportions. You talk about being stressed out. We can't even understand stress until we see Jesus in the garden. The stress was so great that it will not be relieved until his horrible suffering and death on the cross is done. And he knows it. Matthew puts it this way in our text in verse 38. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Now there are some who think that, that he was ready to die in that garden. I'm telling you, there was no chance Jesus was dying in that garden. No chance. It had already been, it had already been spoken of by the prophet. He was going to die on a cross. What he is saying here is that his soul is exceeding sorrowful and it's going to continue all the way until his death was done. What did he say just before he died? It is finished. What was finished? The payment for our sin was finished. But his suffering was finished. His stress, his sorrow, it was all done. There is no greater agony, no greater grief, no greater suffering than that which Jesus suffered on that day. And so in the garden that night, the stress was so great, the struggle was so real that one of his disciples, a doctor by the name of Luke, recorded it this way in Luke 22. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat 
was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Doctors describe this condition as hematidrosis. It's very rare, very serious. What happens is that, is that the emotional distress becomes so great that capillaries beneath the skin burst and blood pours from the sweat glands, especially around the face and the head. Why was Jesus feeling such agony? Let me assure you, it wasn't because he was afraid of dying. Jesus himself acknowledged that there were those who went to a cross and never flinched. Jesus said himself in Matthew 10 and verse 28, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul and hell. It wasn't death that Jesus feared because Jesus came to die. What he feared wasn't death, it was the cup. In our text, Matthew 26 and verse 39, he went a little further. He fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What was the cup? The cup was the wrath of God that was deserved by all of us. It was the wrath of God that I deserve because of my sin. It was the wrath of God that you deserve because of your sin. It was the wrath of God uh, that all of our sin, for every person from the beginning until the end, all of our sin, the wrath of God on the sins of every person is poured out on Jesus. That's what this cup was all about. All Jesus had ever known for all of eternity was nothing but perfect, complete, intimate fellowship with the Heavenly Father. But now, in this garden, He is facing not the love of God, but the judgment of God, the wrath of God, the punishment of God for sins that He did not commit. But what should we learn from this? First, we should learn that it's always best to do the will of God. But it's not always easy to do the will of God. There's always a cost to doing God's will. There's a price to be paid if you're going to do the will of God in your life. Let me say something I hope will encourage you this morning. Jesus knows what it's like when you're in that struggle of your life, when you're in the situation where you don't know what to do, or, where the, or even if you know what to do, you're struggling to do what God wants you to do. He understands it, and He knows it. He knows what it's like to be torn between two desires. He knows what it's like to beg God to, to, beg God to change His mind about something and to hear God say, no. If it was always easy to do God's will... Everybody would do it, but it's not. 
If it was always e if, if it was always easy to do God's will, nobody would ever sin. But it's not easy. This is so important to hear. It is in the private struggle you face in that moment when you're in the Garden of Gethsemane, when you're in that decisive moment in your life, when you are alone with God, that the battle is either won or lost. But there's a second thing that we must understand about Jesus' decisive moment in the Garden. That is that the stakes were astronomically high. His struggle was ultimately about our salvation. Now you may think that the battle for our salvation was won at the cross. And there is a sense in which that's true. But I want you to understand this morning that the battle was won in Gethsemane. If Jesus had said, not your will, but mine be done, we wouldn't be here today. Jesus made up his mind in the garden when he was facing the decision. The old songwriter said something like this. He could have called 10,000 angels to stop the whole thing. He could have. But he didn't. Jesus, he knew why he came. He knew what he was going to do. But in the garden he had this, this uh, uh, battle the struggle because he did not want to be separated from the Father. He didn't even understand. And understand what I mean by this. He had never sinned. He never sinned. He never had a bad thought. And so for Jesus to understand the penalty, the consequences of sin, every time Jesus was mistreated in, in this life, it was something he never knew. Before he came to this earth. The battle was fought in the garden. You and I can be forgiven of our sins today. Because Jesus decided. He made that decision in the garden. When he prayed. One author tells us. About Augustine. This great Christian of the past. And the, there was a decisive moment in his life. He. He had lived his entire adult life moving from one adulterous relationship with a woman to another, sometimes with many. A lot of things were talked about Augustine. But because he had been taught the Word of God as a child and he had a mom who was praying for him, he had a pastor who was concerned about him, he knew that all these things that he had been doing for all these years was outside the will of God. And he had his Bible sitting on a bench under a fig tree. It was open. Tears were falling. And he heard a voice that was calling from a nearby home. It was a child's voice. And it said, pick it up, pick it up. Now that person wasn't talking to Augustine, Augustine, however you want to say his name. That, that person wasn't talking to him. But God used those words to motivate this man to pick up his Bible and read it. And he read these words in Romans 13. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, 
not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. At that moment, in his own Garden of Gethsemane, if you will, Augustine said, from now on, not my will, yours will be done. Augustine said goodbye to that adulterous lifestyle forever and gave the rest of his life to Jesus Christ. The reason why the garden is even in the Bible is to teach us that even though the struggle to do what is right against the temptation to do what is wrong is real, because of the example of Jesus Christ and the power of God, we can win that struggle. But if we're going to, it's going to take an understanding of a third principle. We learn first that decisive moments involve seeking the will of God. Then we learn decisive moments include struggling with the will of God. Finally, if we're going to, if we're going to be successful, then we've got to understand that decisive moments invite surrendering to the will of God. Jesus prays a prayer three times. He prays it out loud. He prays it for a purpose. Many times Jesus prayed because he knew other people would be listening. He prayed, uh, he prayed one time and he says, I'm not praying this for myself, but because of all those that are around. Jesus knew the disciples would hear his prayer. He knew one day uh, they would need his prayer. So he wanted them to hear it and by them hearing it, us to hear it so that we would always pray it. And I want to say this morning, when you find yourself in those situations where you're struggling with God's will, even to the point when you ask God to maybe change his will, pray what Jesus prayed in Matthew 26 and verse 39. Oh, my Father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. The prayer of all prayers is when you say what Jesus finally said in verse 42. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Now notice how Jesus addressed his prayer. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane that we find the only place in Scripture where Jesus ever addressed God as my Father. My Father. Mark tells us that he said, Abba, Father. That word Abba is the Aramaic equivalent to Daddy or Papa. Why is that so important? Because Jesus' prayer was, above all things, a prayer of surrender. He was coming to God as a child comes to his father. He was saying in effect, Father, you will always know what is best. You will always do what is right. You never make a mistake. So not what I will, but what you will. Let your will be done. Now let me be very quick to say, there is nothing wrong with a struggle. There's nothing wrong with the struggle. Struggling with the will of God is natural. But what we need to remember is this. If the price of an action defies God's will, the cost will always be too high. 
Jesus could have said no in the Garden of Gethsemane. He would have avoided the cost of crucifixion, of separation. He would avoid the cost of isolation, of experiencing the full wrath of a holy God against the sins of the world. But the price he would have paid is higher and had already been predetermined that it was far more important to him. The price he would have paid is to lose the entire human race to a devil who hates us and a hell who awaits us. The benefits of following God's will was not only the approval of his heavenly father, but that a multitude of people that no man can, could number who one day will love him and praise him and glorify him and serve him forever and ever and ever. Anyone in business knows that before you enter into a business deal, you always do a cost-benefit analysis. I want you to remember this morning that the benefits of doing the will of God always, always, always outweigh the costs of not doing God's will. Let me close with this illustration. David Livingston felt a call to take the gospel to Africa, oh my goodness, 100, 100 plus years ago, the 1800s. At that time, there were basically no Christians in Africa at all. He left behind a comfortable life in England and went to Africa not long after he got there. A lion jumped on him and clamped his teeth on his shoulder, crushed his arm. He was never able to raise that arm again. Because of that, he was taken back to the coast and was nursed to health in a hospital where he met his wife, Mary. The years passed. They had five children, and for a while they were very happy and satisfied doing the work of God in Africa. While crossing one of the vast plains in Africa, one of their kids died. And so they concluded that it would be safer for his wife and children if they went back to Mary's home in Scotland. And so they did. And for five years, Livingston lived away from his wife and his children because the work in Africa, the demands of the work, the gospel, the need of the gospel was so great. After five years, he went home to see his family, only to discover that his mother and his father had both died while he was in Africa. He spent a little time with his family but kept thinking about the call that God had placed on his life and the thousands and thousands of villages in Africa filled with people who'd never heard the gospel. And so he went back. More years passed until finally he got a letter from Mary saying that uh, she was going to come and join him because their kids had grown up and were now on their own and she would come and be with him. And so for months she traveled across oceans and African rivers until finally she saw her husband. But she barely arrived when she was struck down by an African fever. Livingston, who was a doctor, tried to save his wife, but to no avail. And soon after her arrival and getting sick, Mary died there. He buried her under an African tree. He stayed there for the rest of his life, which actually didn't last very much longer himself, finally dying from multiple diseases that one would suffer in Africa all those many years ago. He paid an unbelievable cost for doing the will of God. What are the benefits, though? 
25 years after he first went to Africa, there were 10 million believers in Africa. 10 million souls had been saved. Today there are over 300 million saved in Africa. What does this have to do with me? Today and every day of your life, you're going to be faced with decisive moments. Moments, whether it's going to be being honest in a business deal or keeping your purity, holding a marriage together, serving God faithfully in your church. Just remember that the benefits of doing the will of God are always greater than the costs. Christian friend, look at your life every day as an opportunity to make a momentous decision See it as a decisive moment. Every day when you get up, make up your mind, I want to do the will of God today. Today. And if you don't know Jesus today, this is a decisive moment in your life. Whether you realize it or not, this morning you are going to choose to accept the payment that Jesus Christ made for your sin when he died on the cross or you're going to decide to pay for your sin yourself in hell for all of eternity you say man that is harsh that's just truth here's what the bible says about it romans 6 23 for the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life through jesus christ our lord this is your decisive moment the decision is up to you god's will about this is plain in 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His uh, promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is your decisive moment. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, today, this is your decisive moment. What will you do with it?